That chat is brought to you by Walters, and Walters is excited to announce that Walters will be having live music this coming Tuesday, August 17th. Join Walters on its streetery for our very own Jack McGowan before the game Tuesday night. Walters also will be celebrating Nat's Night Out at the ballpark with the tasting of some fresh new beers from D.C.'s only LGBT-owned brewery. As football season approaches, keep Walters in mind as the spot you and buddies can meet up all day Saturday and Sunday. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The 2-2. Swing a long drive straight away center. Robles going back to the warning track, climbing the wall. Can't get it. It's gone. A home run. Swanson has homered again, his fourth of the series, his 24th of the year, and it is 3-0 Atlanta. Here it is. Swing a line drive, left field, well hit. Duvall giving chase, will make the catch toward the line, tagging at third. Robles, he'll come in to score the tying run. Soto with a sacrifice fly on a bullet line drive to left, and the Nationals have battled back to tie the Braves in the third inning. It's the Nationals 3 and Atlanta 3. And now Espino's into the wide. Here is the pitch, and a swing, and a drive of the air to left, sending Thomas back, way back. Warning track at the bullpen fence, and it is gone. An opposite field home run into the visitors' bullpen for Freddie Freeman. Smith sets, first base side of the rubber. Big lefty checks the runner at second, the pitch. Swing a ground ball up the third base line. Oh, what a stab by Raleigh. He spins, he turns, he fires to first to Freeman in time, and the game is over. What a play by Austin Riley. Guarding the line takes an extra base hit away that might have won the game for the Nationals. Certainly would have scored the tying run. An outstanding backhanded stab. And then he has an absolute rifle to throw out Keyboom to end the game. We had to put Joe on on the uh, IL yesterday uh, after his bullpen reported that he had some right form tightness. And welcome to Nats Chat for Monday, August 16th, 2021, along with Nationals Insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi Podcast. Well, we thought 2020 was the worst year ever for everyone and everything, and maybe it was, but when it comes to the Nationals, 2020 has nothing on 2021, which incredibly now has gotten even worse. And I'm not even talking about the Nats having been swept in three games by the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park over the weekend. Terrible news coming out on Sunday morning that Joe Ross may need a second Tommy John surgery. Like a piano falling out of the sky, this fell onto every Nationals fan. This news, which seemingly came out of nowhere, the Nationals putting Joe Ross on the 10-day injured list as he's dealing with right UCL trouble. And while it's not a definite that he needs Tommy John, 
It sure sounds like it's heading that way. And if you've been a baseball fan for any substantial length of time, you know normally when it is said that a pitcher may need Tommy John, he inevitably ends up getting the Tommy John. This doesn't mean, you know, right now that he's going to have to have Tommy John surgery. So we just we want to make sure that he goes to see the doctor that did his first surgery and then get the results. And then after that, we'll determine what kind of treatment or prognosis uh, will happen. Mark, one of these days, I want to start one of these shows on an uplifting note. Unfortunately, uh, that day is not this show. What a whopper of bad news for the Nationals on Sunday. Yeah, that one did hit like a ton of bricks, Al. And as you start to piece it together, you're realizing, okay, I kind of maybe should have seen something coming, not necessarily that. Remember how we talked about how Davey made us wait for so long on Saturday night? I think it was because, in part, he was getting the news about this. And then we also had to wait for him on Sunday morning for his normal pregame session with us. It was about 30 minutes late. They hadn't put out a lineup yet, even though it's only like an hour and a half to game time. So that said to me, okay, there's a roster move coming. And so I wasn't surprised that there was some kind of news. But when it was that, no, I I can't say I saw that coming. You know, they said, hey, Joe Ross is dealing with some elbow soreness, so we're going to put him on the IL. Okay, that wouldn't have been shocking. But the fact that they already had done the MRI, that they already have diagnosed a partial tear of the UCL, And now he's heading down to Dallas to meet with the doctor that performed his Tommy John surgery in 2017. You could hear it in Davey Martinez's voice. He was down. I mean, this is a tough one. I talked to Joe this morning for quite a while. He's down. We're all down. uh, But we hope the best, you know, comes out of this. Again, like you said, let's qualify this. We don't know for sure. It's entirely possible that the surgeon will say this is something you can rest and rehab and pitch through. And other pitchers have done that. So it's not, you know, completely uncommon for it. But it is risky. There's always a chance of it going all the way. And for someone who's already had this before, I think that's the the biggest blow of it. If you said, hey, Joe Ross needs Tommy John surgery and he's going to miss the rest of this year and probably most of next year, you'd say, all right, that stinks. But if they're not really in a position to win next year anyways, and he comes back from that, he could still be an important part of all this. Well, it's the second potentially Tommy John surgery for him. And we, as we know, it's not impossible, but the track record goes way down for guys coming back from that. And so that, I think, above all else, given everything that Joe has dealt with in his career, that, I think, is the toughest pill for everyone to swallow if this is the end result. Yeah, I really do feel for the guy. I mean, you know, we have fun with these players and their performances, but at the end of the day, like, we're rooting for the team to do well, and we want these guys to succeed and thrive. And it's been a rough go of it for Joe Ross for years now. This is a guy who was good for the Nats in 2015 and 2016, and since then, It's been like one problem after another. 2016, he missed more than two months due to right shoulder inflammation. July 2017, he underwent that first Tommy John surgery. September 2019, he missed about three weeks due to forearm soreness. This past July, he spent a good chunk of that month on the 10-day IL with right elbow inflammation. And maybe that should have been a sign of, hey, there's something going on here beyond just, you know, your routine elbow soreness. But, you know, you think back now on Ross's season this year and this whole thing we've been all over of sometimes he's great, sometimes he's bad. You know, he's been wildly inconsistent. Maybe that's just who he is as a pitcher or maybe just maybe this is why that this guy has been in pain for a good chunk of this season. And, you know, you take a step back, right? And you take stock of all this. And this isn't really news at this point, but the just complete nightmare for this Nationals rotation this year, the Nationals being now 18 games below 500 is about a lot of things. But if you're trying to itemize those things, you could start with just the complete implosion of the rotation, where the only guy who's been really any good this season, Max Scherzer, has been traded. So, you know, his success is mitigated by that. 
Steven Strasburg just underwent surgery for maybe the worst single thing a pitcher can have to deal with, thoracic outlet syndrome. Patrick Corbin has a single worst ERA among qualified pitchers in the majors. Eric Fetty has gone from looking like he was blossoming to now having a 5.12 ERA. John Lester during his time with the Nats had a 5.02 ERA, got traded. Paolo Espino's carriage has turned back into a pumpkin. And now you have this Joe Ross news. Like, it's been almost the worst case scenario for every Nationals pitcher this year, save for Scherzer. It is pretty stunning to think about. And we have a lot of time to talk about all this, but it also leaves me looking at this and saying, what's their rotation going into next year? Who do they even have that they know can take the ball every fifth day for them? And I think they may have no choice but to go outside and acquire like a, just a real big league pitcher. Not necessarily because it's somebody they think is going to help them in the long run to win, but just to help them get through every turn through the rotation. It is going to be a scramble. Even for the rest of this year now, it's going to be a scramble. And that's tough for everyone. But a couple things here on Joe. You mentioned all the things he's dealt with. And that was one of the first thoughts I had today when the news did come out. And that was, remember a month ago, they shut him down for a little bit because he had some soreness. And they kind of downplayed it. And they said, you know, we were probably planning on giving him some time off anyways this year. They were very mindful all along of his workload after having sat out last year. And they brought him back. And this was at that point coming out of the all-star break where they were still kind of in the race and still thinking they were contending this year and trying to make that last push before the trade deadline. And don't know for sure. And he was throwing the ball hard. He threw the ball well at times during that stretch. But did pushing him there end up leading to this? And if the team had been a little further back at the time and realized they weren't going to win and they were going to be sellers instead of buyers, the trade deadline, would they have been more cautious with him and not brought him back when they did? And it's like this chain reaction that you could see how it maybe led to all this. Now, he's claiming that he didn't feel anything until his bullpen session on Saturday. So maybe that's true. Take him at his word for it. But it's not that hard to connect some dots here and say that after sitting out last season, having dealt with injuries in the past, having dealt with something in July, I can't say I'm shocked that now something happened. You hope that it wouldn't be this bad and maybe it still won't be. But it's not shocking that this is where we got to given the steps that preceded it. Yeah, I do wonder about him not playing last year. You think in theory, well, that should make you fresher for 2021, but maybe it has an opposite effect of leading to injury. Like, we don't know. Uh, You know, it's all speculative. I don't think Ross probably knows. Like, that's an alternate universe. What if he had pitched last year? But that was always one of the things about this season. How were pitchers going to react to not having thrown their normal innings totals the previous year? And Maybe this has nothing to do with him having sat out last year, or maybe this has a lot to do with him having sat out last year. We just don't know. So like we said, it's not definite he's getting the surgery. So he's going to get this uh, other opinion. I guess, will we find out this week if he's getting the surgery or not necessarily? Yeah, they didn't have an exact timeline yet, but my guess is it'll happen fairly soon. Because, you know, think about it this way. If they are going to go ahead and do it, and we know the recovery from this is typically minimum 12 months then that sets up an interesting timeline for next year, where if he did get it done here in the next few weeks, then there's a chance he comes back like in September of next year. Not because they need him in a pennant race. Let's not fool ourselves here. But there is value. Remember, Steven Strasburg came back in September the year after. Jordan Zimmerman came back September the year after. I believe Joe Ross actually came back September the year after his first Tommy John surgery. So I think there is some value in that. Now, not every team does it. And I think it was Tyler Glasnow of the Rays who is having Tommy John. And I think the Rays already announced that he's out for all of next year. I could be wrong about that, but I want to say that they maybe already said that. So it depends how you want to approach it. But 
to me, if they decide this is the course of action and he's ready for it, then I would say go ahead and do it and at least leave that window of opportunity open to come back and make a few starts at the end of 2022 because that could maybe lay the groundwork for 2023. It has never been more important, and it was already important, but Josiah Gray, Cade Cavalli, Jackson Rutledge, that's what it's all about at this point with this Nationals rotation. You cannot count on Steven Strasburg. You cannot count on Patrick Corbin. Now you can't count on Joe Ross. Max Scherzer is long gone. It's incredible, man. All these names we've become so accustomed to, and not only are they, you know, some not even here right now, but it's like they're almost non-factors moving forward, or at least you can't look at them as factors moving forward. Things change quickly in life. I think we all know that. Man, have things changed quickly for the Nationals from a rotation standpoint. Just over the last six months, never mind like a few years, over the last six months, this is quite a time of change for the Nationals when it comes to their rotation. Yeah, I mean, think about going into this season. And we know how this team has been built for all these years and how they won all those years. But going into this season, and this is what they pinned their hopes on. This is why they thought that it was worth going for it again this year. Scherzer, Strasburg, Corbin at the top. They were hoping that Lester could fill the Anibal Sanchez role. And then they still had Ross and Fetty and Voth potentially to help fill that all out. They had reason to believe that if things worked out, that this could be an elite rotation again, and this was going to lead them back into the postseason again. And now look where they are, where they're either gone or, like you said, I don't think they can go into next season counting on any of those things. You can hope that Strasburg is healthy and effective. You can hope that Corbin figures it out. You can hope that maybe Joe Ross doesn't need the surgery, but you can't count on any of those things right now. And so they do have to proceed, in my mind, as if they aren't going to have any of them. And the focus shifts to the young guys. And like I said, they may have no choice but to go out this winter and add somebody just to be sure that they have a major league caliber starter who can consistently give you five or six quality innings because the domino effect of it is going to be hard on everyone. And that can lead to problems for other guys and to your bullpen. It can lead to problems for your other starters that maybe you're pushing too hard. I mean, we're just assuming that Cavalli is part of the mix next year. We don't know that for sure. We don't know if he's in the opening day rotation. They may not want to do that yet. There are so few sure things right now looking ahead to next year. It is staggering how that has become the case in just a short amount of time. Just keep muttering that to yourself if you're a Nats fan right now. Gray, Cavalli, Rutledge. Gray, Cavalli, Rutledge. Just let that drumbeat pound in your brain because otherwise you'll go nuts right now if you're a Nats fan. One more thing on Ross. So he's set to be a free agent after the 2022 season. This is going to cost him money. Now, I'm not saying he would have gotten some mega contract, but he's going to go into free agency, maybe not pitching again, and most maybe pitching a month next season. So there's that to be thinking about. I would assume maybe he gets some, you know, one-year contract from someone after next year, but he may have thrown his final pitch as a national. Like, that's in play at this point. Yeah, uh, I didn't necessarily want to bring it up, but there is a scenario. And again, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. Let's see what happens here. But there's a scenario where because he's in arbitration and because he did put up some numbers this year that his salary would go up. And are they going to say, okay, we're going to pay you that salary next year while you're just rehabbing? So there is a scenario in which they would non-tender him this winter. That's a hard pill to swallow. It's a, it's a cold thing to do. But I mean, there is real rationale behind that. Now, maybe they would come up with some way of, hey, we're going to non-tender you and then we're going to bring you back on a minor league deal, let you rehab with us and try to get you back and ultimately you'll get paid. So again, we're looking way ahead of ourselves. We don't even know 
what the CBA is going to look like, what the non-tender situation is going to be, contracts, arbitration, all that stuff. It's a huge question mark. But yeah, there is a path you can see this going down in which Joe Ross really, on top of the injury, really gets screwed from a financial standpoint and a contract standpoint. Wow. Just awful news. So we do wish Joe Ross the best. And yeah, man, the hits just keep on coming for the 2021 Washington Nationals. Zimmerman holds Springer. Ross out of the stretch, delivers, swinging a chopping ground ball toward short. Turner has it, a flip to Kendrick, plenty of time, throw to first, it's a double play! Joe Ross gets the big pitch. Not only does he get Altuve, the toughest man in the Astros lineup in this postseason out, he gets two outs with one pitch. Nats Chat is sponsored by Silver Branch Brewing Company, located in downtown Silver Spring, only a one-minute walk from the Silver Spring Metro Station. Silver Branch is a perfect jumping-off point to Metro down to the game. Park at the Cameron Street parking lot and meet up with friends for a beer and a bite to eat before Metroing down. You can also get Silver Branch beer at Nationals Park. Beyond the Gnome World, one of Silver Branch's four flagship beers is available at District Drafts at Section 223. Brewed to be light and refreshing, Beyond the Gnome World won a gold medal for the Saison beer style at the Great American Beer Festival last year. Beyond the Gnome World is deliciously dry and thirst-quenching and the perfect beer for hot summertime ball games. You may not be familiar with Saison, but take our word for it, baseball season is the perfect season for Saison, and buying from District Drafts to support your local breweries is a gnome run. Go to Section 223 and try Beyond the Gnome World the next time that you're at Nats Park, and make sure you stop by Silver Branch, located in Metro Plaza, just steps from the Silver Spring Metro. Silver Branch Brewing Company, when you come in, let them know that the Nats Chat Podcast sent you. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now the right-hander ready. Chavez, first base side of the slab, kicks, delivers, swing, and a ground ball. One hop through and a right, a base hit. Soto scores from third. Bell's on his way to the plate. The throw is not in time. It's a single to right. Two runs batted in for Carter Keeble with his second hit of the game. And the Nationals get back to within a run here at the bottom of the fifth with two out. A clutch two-run single. It's now the Braves six and the Nationals five. 
So yeah, the Nets got swept over the weekend against the Atlanta Braves. Now, the game on Sunday was far more competitive than the game on Saturday evening. So there is that. You had the 12-2 loss on Saturday night. You had actually a pretty exciting game on Sunday afternoon. Like if you just think about the game in and of itself and examine the game as its own entity, it ends up being a 6-5 loss. The Nationals, again, come up with the tying run at the plate and look like they get a walk-off hit from Carter Keeboom. Boy, did he hit that ball hard. But Austin Riley, the Braves third baseman, ends up making a very nice play, a backhanded stab on a hard-hit key boom grounder, essentially down the third base line. And so what ends up looking like a potential walk-off hit ends up being a game-ending ground out. Swinging a ground ball up the third base line. Oh, what a stab by Riley. He spins, he turns, he fires to first to Freeman in time, and the game is over. And the Nats get swept. I mean, ultimately, look, it's close, but it's another loss. So it's now seven consecutive losses for the Nationals. The Nats now, since getting to 40 and 38 off winning 14 to 17, are 10 and 30. The Nats now are 50 and 68, 18 games below 500. The Nats had not been 18 games below 500 since October 2010. And so here we are. I mean, a better performance on Sunday, but still another loss. Yeah. And, you know, (laughs) there are ways to look at this and actually be encouraged, (laughs) you know, as bad as it is, as bad as the end results are, they are in just about every game. Saturday night was a bad game. They got blown out. But this was in this stretch of 12 of 13, they've lost. Six of them have been by one run and another two by two runs. So in spite of all their issues, and there are plenty of them, and and the team that they're fielding right now, which is a shell of its former self, they are giving themselves a chance where one more hit in the right moment or one more pitch in the right moment, and they would be winning some games in impressive fashion. And like you said, they were right there. I thought off the bat, I think everybody thought Keeboom might have at least tied the game, if not won the games, 103 miles an hour off the bat. And if the Braves aren't playing a no doubles defense, the ball probably gets right down the line. No problem. But that's why you do it to prevent that and ultimately make the play. I thought Carter had a good day at the plate. The two run, two out single in the fifth, I thought was a really nice piece of hitting and the kind of thing that we haven't seen as much from him in the past, but we're starting to see more from him. I thought the at bat in the ninth was good. I thought there were a lot of positive things actually in this game. And a lot of them from like the building block guys, the ones who you want to see this from between Keyboom, between Luis Garcia, Lane Thomas, one of the new guys, Victor Robles. There were some good quality at bats in there. And I feel for them because they deserve to win a couple of these games. I'm not saying they deserve to win a majority of them, but they deserve to win at least a few of them. Their bullpen was good in this game. The lineup kept giving them chances like this felt like one that they deserved to win. Yeah, they didn't actually because of our guy, Paolo Espino, and we'll get to him in just a bit. But I'm with you on Keyboom. You know, he did not do that well in games one and two. He did do well in this game three of the series. Some hard hit balls, like you said. The two-run single was really good. Opposite field was that ball hit. Uh, Hit to right field and was hit on a one-two pitch. It was good to see that. He had that leadoff single to left field in the bottom of the fourth inning. And, you know, I know you guys brought this up on the, uh, the podcast for Friday's game. It's kind of worth revisiting here. So, The Brave who just scorched the Nats in this series, of course, was Dansby Swanson. The Nats could not get Dansby Swanson out to save their lives in this series. He ultimately, in this series, ends up having really one of like the better series performances you'll ever see an opposing batter have. Seven of 14 with four homers, three singles, and nine RBI. And it wasn't that long ago that Dansby Swanson was considered a flop. Like the Dansby Swanson 
of, say, 2017, 2018 really wasn't that impressive. And it's been kind of a steady climb for Swanson 2019, 2020. And now in 2021, he's got an OPS of 815. And it is a reminder of a guy like Carter Keboom of, you know, we shouldn't just give up on the guy. And sure enough, he has looked appreciably better as a batter in this latest go-round at the major league level. Now, a lot of his hits are singles, yes, but he's getting a decent number of hits. He's looking more comfortable at the plate. He's hitting balls hard. He's not doomed when he's behind in counts. I do think that's encouraging here. Like, we'll see what the rest of the season shows us. But if nothing else, this has been kind of a sneaky positive development over the last few weeks. It feels like Carter Keeble may well not be a lost cause and may not be the bust that a lot of people were starting to think that he was. Certainly the viewpoint in him, I think, is a whole lot better today than it was, say, three weeks ago. When they made these moves and they said, okay, Carter Keeble's our third baseman now. Let's go see what he can do. Well, we have seen things that we had not seen in the past, and that's good. Now, we need to see it a lot longer. We need to see a lot more of it. We need to see it also in the field, which has still been a bit of an issue, as we've talked about. So there is that. But for a guy who, as far as being a big leaguer, since he debuted being thrown into the to the fire in 2019 when Trey Turner got hurt, there had been very little, aside from, I think, like his first couple of days in the big leagues when he hit a couple home runs. Other than that, there had been almost nothing that you could point to and say, oh, okay, there, that's what they saw in him. Wow. I can see it now. And finally, here in the last couple of weeks, there have been a few of those moments. So that's good. The best thing can happen now is for them to keep putting him out there every day the rest of the way. And when you get to the end of the season, you're going to say, okay, we think we have something here. Or, nah, you know, what? we really don't have something here. We need to look elsewhere. I think he's taken the right approach to it. We talked to him after the game, and I, I was actually impressed with the way he handled all this and saying that he understands that they all want to win these games, and this is hard for them. But they also understand that it's about the process now. You know, we, we realize what's going on. We're um, not naive in that, ma- in that uh, manner. So as a whole, we're all ultimately trying to get better every single day. And um, every day we can make a little stride and uh, to, to make some sort of improvement. And that if you keep the process going, the results will happen. So for someone who has been dealing with a lot the last few years and had all the expectations in the world heaped on him and had not lived up to them, I'm actually impressed with the way it seems like he's handling the situation. And you hope that in the long run, it's best for him and for the team. Yeah, it's funny with Keeboom because in his very first major league game, he homered. In fact, he homered off the ex-nat Craig Stammen, and then he homered later in that series. And so you're like, wow, this guy's legit. And things really calmed down for him beyond that point and really had calmed down for him since then up until these last few weeks. And he's looked better, at least offensively. So it was nice to see that. You mentioned Victor Robles. Robles ends up having a nice offensive series. He did have the defensive screw up in game two, but Victor Robles, who was out there in every game of this series as the Nationals leadoff batter and starting center fielder. I like that from Davey. Let's keep seeing that. Uh, he ends up going five for 14 with two doubles and three singles in the series. Two more doubles for Mr. Doubles, Victor Robles. All he does is hit doubles. He had a ground rule double in this game on Sunday, a two-out ground rule double to the left center field gap on an 0-2 pitch in the bottom of the six, and he had a one-out RBI single to left field on a 1-2 pitch in the Nats three-run third. So is he coming around? Who the heck knows? I mean, the overall numbers on the season for him are still bad, but that was good to see. Luis Garcia had a pretty nice series, uh, two for three with two singles in game one, one for two with a single and a couple of walks in game three. Now, Luis was the starting shortstop in this game on Sunday. Did have a throwing error in the game. The 1-1. Ground slowly left side into the shift and cutting in front, Garcia of Sanchez, a low throw. Bell can't scoop it. Well, there was a little bit of a traffic jam there as Garcia and Sanchez both went for the ball. 
Garcia, the shortstop, cut in front of him. And then threw off balance, low to Bell, who couldn't pick it. And so Garcia picks up an error. And that was kind of an odd moment because you almost had an infield collision. He and Adrian Sanchez, I don't know, if one of them had to decide who's going to get the baseball. They almost collided into each other. Uh, and then Luis had a bad throw on that play. But uh, Luis ended up with three hits in the series. Yeah, and two walks, which I like to see. They want to see a lot more of that from him. And that play in the field was a weird one. And it does kind of remind you at times that if you're going to shift as much as they are, you had two guys essentially playing the shortstop position and a ball that was hit to is basically where the shortstop would normally play. It's a routine ground ball. There's only one guy there. It's an easy play. But because all of a sudden there's two of them and you're probably not used to that, here's what happens. But I think also that was instructive of, you know, Garcia has played almost exclusively at second base since he's been up here. Escobar got this game off, so they moved him over to short. Maybe it's ultimately best for a young kid to have one position and stick with it. And maybe they really do believe ultimately that he's best at second base. And so just stick with that. Even if Escobar needs a day off, you could play Sanchez there instead. A little bit of an ugly moment there. And I can't say I'm surprised given who it was and the situation they're in. And real quick on Robles, because I want to mention that the RBI single in the third inning, that was the most impressive one to me. He gets started off with a couple of curveballs. He's down in the count. He fouls one off. He fouls off another pitch. And then he ultimately he gets him to throw a fastball. And that's what he hit for the single. He fought through the breaking stuff that, you know, he usually has trouble with. And he kind of forced the pitcher to throw a fastball. And that's what he delivered on. That's the kind of at bat they need to see from Victor Robles way more than we have. So that was a really nice sign to me. That was. That was a good piece of hitting. And like we said, another double. 21 doubles now for Victor Robles. Leads all active nationals and is just too shy of Josh Harrison's overall team lead of 23. We also had the Nats debut of Lane Thomas on Sunday as the corresponding roster move to the Nats putting Joe Ross on the 10-day IL was the Nats recalling Lane Thomas from AAA Rochester. So Lane Thomas is the guy who the Nats got back from the St. Louis Cardinals in the John Lester trade as in maybe the ultimate example of Mike Rizzo's aptitude as a general manager, at least when it comes to trades, was him trading John Lester and his 502 ERA to the Cardinals on July 30th. And while Lane Thomas was a formerly highly regarded Cardinals prospect whose stock had taken some hits, he's still something, and something is better than nothing. I'm still amazed that the Nats got something back for Lester. And I know it's one game, but Lane Thomas as the Nats starting left fielder and number two batter, which tells you all you need to know about the state of the Nats lineup right now, had two singles and a walk in this game on Sunday. Bottom of the first has a one-out full count single to left field despite having been down to the count of 1.02. Now, he does get picked off and caught stealing second base for the final out of the inning, so that was bad. But Lane then had a one-out opposite field single to right field on a 1-2 pitch in the Nats' three-run third, and then he drew a one-out five-pitch walk in that uh, mini rally there in the bottom of the ninth inning. So instant dividends being paid off by Lane Thomas as yet another guy acquired in the national sell-off is already playing for the Nationals at the major league level. He's the fourth one who's already been up here. And that's pretty amazing. We've talked about this. This doesn't usually happen that way. When you have a sell-off and you're getting prospects, it usually takes a year or two. They already have four of them up here. Are you willing to say they've won the trade already just based on the fact that he's here and he reached base three times? I am. That is a victory for Mike Rizzo. Okay. All right. There you go. So they're going to get more of a look at him. I think he'll be here, if not for the duration, close to it, provided they can afford the roster spot. He is a right-handed backup outfielder, something they have been missing all along. I think he is going to get opportunities, especially against left-handers. And let's see what they got. Maybe it is something, if nothing else, the fact that they were able to turn John Lester into someone who could theoretically be a piece of the future here. 
that made that a great trade in my mind. I know we've talked about it. Good start for him. Let's see what else he can do. Yeah, good job by him. Then with Juan Soto in the series, Soto ends up having a good series from a standpoint of getting on base, three for nine with a double, two singles, and three walks. Two more walks for him on Sunday to go with an RBI sack fly. Did strike out on five pitches with Lane Thomas on first, one out, and the Nats trailing 6-5 in the bottom of the ninth inning. But we are back to this thing of Juan Soto not hitting homers. He has hit one home run in the month of August. Now, his slugging percentage for the season is still above 500 at 506. You know, it's funny. Soto doesn't have many doubles this season. He's had multiple lengthy homerless droughts this season, and yet somehow his slugging percentage is still above 500. I'm not sure how that is. So, you know, we're not here to do the thing of, oh, Juan Soto, what's wrong with him? But it is notable, like he is back to just not hitting home runs or for whatever reason. I'm sure they'll come again, but for right now, they're not coming. It's a bunch of singles and walks for the most part for Juan right now. They are pitching around him. You know, I think we have to acknowledge that with the lineup and the way it is. And then there were a couple examples of that in this game. Fifth inning, two outs, nobody on. They pitch around him to get to Bell. Now, worked for the Nationals because Bell then doubled off the wall and then Keyboom had his two-run single. If that's going to be the case... If Soto is going to be pitched around like that, then the guys behind him have to deliver. So he did it there. Seventh inning, they pitched around him, walked, lead off the inning. They couldn't drive him in. And then in the ninth, he had a chance because Thomas walked. He comes up one out, runner on first, game on the line. And Will Smith, who he's had a lot of success against, including on opening day this year, went after him. And Juan took a 2-2 slider right on the corner for strike three and was pretty upset by it. So that was an opportunity for him, and he wasn't able to deliver. He's not going to get a lot of them, as we've seen. He's not getting a whole lot of opportunities, especially in big moments. It's too bad he didn't deliver that one. So with the Nats bullpen, uh, you mentioned it being good, and it was. Nats bullpen was actually good in two of the three games in this series. It really was Javi Guerra and Jeffrey Rodriguez in the 12-2 loss on Saturday night who were bad. Otherwise, I thought the bullpen, for the most part, in this series did a pretty good job. Five Nats relievers get utilized in this game on Sunday afternoon, and they combined to allow one run in five innings. Uh, Gabe Klobositz did allow a run in one inning, but Andres Machado tossed a perfect top of the sixth. Mason Thompson, a scoreless top of the seventh. Ryan Harper, who we wondered, geez, why did he only pitch two-thirds of an inning on Saturday night? Well, Davey was saving him for this all-important game three of the series. Uh, Ryan with a perfect top of the eighth to lower his ERA to 0.79. And Kyle Finnegan, who had not pitched in the series, tossed a perfect top of the ninth inning. So, Nice to see that. I know we've said, you know, there's really no longer a varsity and a junior varsity with the bullpen. I do think, though, there are guys who you look at and you say, all right, they're young enough to where maybe they are bullpen pieces moving forward. I mean, Klobositz to me could be a guy. Thompson could be a guy. Finnegan could be a guy. Ryan Harper has done well enough. I know he's not young, but it's not inconceivable that he's back next season and is good for them. So I do think it matters with some of these guys, like how they do do down the stretch, because you're obviously going to need bullpen arms for next year. And it would be nice to feel reasonably comfortable with a few of these guys moving forward. Yeah. And I think the ones that you saw on Sunday are pretty much the ones that Davey views as potential pieces. Obviously, Finnegan is at the top of that list, but Mason Thompson has been used in mostly high leverage spots. And for the most part, it's looked good. He's had a couple meltdowns, which is to be expected. Andres Machado has kind of quietly been pretty good for them. They like him as a, a long-term piece. Klobosits was kind of all over the place in this one, came in in relief of Paolo Espino and there were a couple wild pitches. There was an awkward chopper back to the mound and throw to the plate that they got him out, but it almost didn't. It could have been really ugly. 2-2 pitch, swing and a chopper, back to the leaping Clovis. It's runner breaks for the plate to throw home. Did he get him? Out is the call. On the high chopper to the mound, Clovis, it's made the play. 
and threw home to Adams who had a whirl and find the runner behind him to get the tag on him. That was not a good throw. Uh, not a good throw at all. That one was a bit of an adventure, but I thought Machado, Thompson, Harper, and Finnegan combined. I mean, that's the reason they had a chance to win. I'll be honest. I thought when they're down, uh, what was it, 6-3 or 6-4 midway through the game, I'm thinking they're going to give up 10 runs today. Just the way the bullpen has been, the way the Braves lineup has been. So the fact that they shut it down from that point and actually put the team in a position where they were this close to winning the bottom of ninth is a whole lot of credit to them. They just need to start seeing it consistently. You are going to see them pitch in big spots, but I also think Davey is very much aware of how much he's used them. And when you start putting these inexperienced guys into big situations and they start taking losses or blowing leads, that can have a really adverse effect on them, on their mindset. And so I think they got to be careful with that. I don't know who else you use, but you just hope that some of those don't, you know, don't come back to haunt them and ruin whatever potential they might have because you're being put in spots that, frankly, they probably shouldn't be put into at this stage of their career. Yeah, and given the state of the rotation, I don't know how that changes the rest of the season. I mean, it just doesn't feel like this rotation is trending in anything close to a positive direction. And that does bring us to our guy, Paolo Espino. And I hate to do this because we love Paolo. We've had a lot of fun with Paolo, but the joyride may well be over with Paolo Espino. He gives up five runs in four innings on Sunday, gives up eight hits, three homers, a double, and four singles. He issued two walks. He had three strikeouts. It was tough to watch some of this, especially when he gives up two runs in the top of the fifth, begins that inning by giving up back-to-back homers to Freddie Freeman and Austin Riley, and then Davey Martinez pulls Paolo from the game. But here's the bottom line with our guy Paolo. So peak Paolo, the peak of the Paolo Espino experience was the 8-4 win over the Mets at Nationals Park on June 28th in that makeup game. An 0-2 count on McNeil. Top of the fifth. Nationals leading 3-0. Espino sets. Here's the pitch. Swing and a miss. Struck him out on a curveball. And the side retired. Paolo Espino has his third strikeout and has himself five scoreless innings. He tossed five scoreless innings and a spot start. Paolo was never more Paolo than he was in that game, which he exited with an ERA of 2-0-2 on the season. Now, that game was on June 28th. Like the national season overall, since the start of July, Paolo Espino has struggled. Paolo, since that peak point, that start against the Mets on June 28th, nine games, eight starts, ERA of 631, 25 earned runs in 35 and two-thirds innings. It says a lot about the work he had done that it was only now, with this game on Sunday, that his ERA crossed over into being above four on the season. That tells you a lot about the job that he had done. But we now have a pretty substantial body of work over the last six weeks or so that says the Paolo Espino who was on display initially this season is not the Paolo Espino we're seeing right now. So I think if I can interpret you, what you're saying is that if we have one thing to point to as the reason for the Nationals collapse, the great collapse of 2021, it is the collapse of Paolo Espino from elite secret weapon to very hittable back end of the rotation starter? That's what started everything. That was the spark that started the fire, the fall of Paolo, yes. If only we realized it at the time, we could have saved the season. Oh, well. Look, he's getting exposed. I think we know that. We know that he has to be really pinpoint with his command to have success against big league hitters. He's getting beat when he puts the ball up in the zone. And he said he knows that hitters are, are getting a book on him and they know that he likes to go to his off-speed stuff. 
to get out. And he felt like they were maybe sitting on that a little bit much, which means he may have to try to go to his fastball more. We know he doesn't really have the kind of fastball that's going to get a lot of hitters out. So it's a tough spot to be in. They have to keep pitching him every fifth day because they don't have anybody else now. I mean, we're at a point where Sean Nolan is probably going to be in the rotation as well. They can get through the next week because of off days that they can bump guys up and not have to pitch on short rest. But eventually they need a fifth starter. And at the moment, it's probably Sean Nolan, which means Espino's in the rotation, Corbin's in the rotation, Fetty's in the rotation, Josiah Gray's in the rotation. This is who they are now. And it's going to be difficult to watch at times. That's also a reason why to get back to what we talked about with the bullpen and how much they've been used. I know a lot of people, myself included, were wondering, in the bottom of the fourth, the Nats had two runners on, two outs, and Espino coming up to bat. And Klobositz was already warming in the bullpen. And there was a thought, hey, go ahead and pinch hit here, take your shot. And he didn't. And he ends up giving up back-to-back homers to start the fifth, and he brings in Klobositz anyways. So why bother with that? And the answer from Davey, twofold. First, he said if the bases were loaded, he would have treated it differently. But because it was only two on and two out, didn't feel like it was worth the shot. And it ties into understanding how much they've asked of the bullpen. Said they cannot keep asking their relievers to give them 15, 18, or more outs a game. At some point, starters have to go deeper. And so he tried to do that with Paolo, and it did not work out. But it's why he and these other guys are going to keep pitching every fifth day and probably have more rope than they should because they've got to save the younger arm. They just have to do that. Yeah, you, you cannot judge Davey's strategy in the normal way the rest of the season. It's not the same. It's You have to look at it through the prism of you know this retool and the state of the bullpen and what's going on in the rotation right now. I mean, what's the over-under on how many more times this season a national starter pitches at least six innings? Like, realistically, how many more times this year is that going to happen? Four? Five? Like, eight? Like, what are we looking at here? I, I mean, I would take the under on whatever the number is. It just feels like every game is kind of the same thing. Four or five innings and that's it. That's a tough spot and something that we just have not seen here. We really have never seen this, not in a very long time. And maybe it does mean that someone like Corbin, even if he struggles, is going to have to be pushed to get to 100 pitches no matter what. Maybe Fetty, same kind of thing. They may have no choice but to do that because the alternatives are not there and Josiah Gray is going to be the one to watch every five days, and everyone else is not going to be the one to watch. And that's a really, really discouraging thought for what the rest of the season is going to be like. It's like Serenity now in Seinfeld. Just keep saying it. Gray, Cavalli, Rutledge. Gray, Cavalli, Rutledge. Yeah, and you know what Serenity now leads to? Insanity later. (laughs) Serenity now! Serenity now! (laughs) What is that? doctor gave me a relaxation cassette. When my blood pressure gets too high, the man on the tape tells me to say, Serenity now! Are you supposed to yell it? The man on the tape wasn't specific. Tickets for the remainder of the 2021 Fredericksburg National Season are on sale now. They have promotions for every night of the week, like $2 Tuesdays, Thirsty Thursdays, Firework Fridays, and Giveaway Sundays. If you can't make it to the game in person, you can listen to a free online radio broadcast on the Fred Nats Baseball Network or watch a live video stream with a subscription to MILB.TV. Stop by the box office or visit FredNats.com for ticket information and see the future stars of the Washington Nationals today. You can always email us at the Nats Chat Podcast, Nats Chat Podcast at gmail.com. 
We got this interesting email from Chris Wilson. He writes, Alan Mark, if the Nats are fully committed to letting the kids play and getting a full assessment of their potential, wins and losses be darned, then why not hit Keyboom and Garcia at the top of the order ahead of Soto? Doing so maximizes their total number of plate appearances for assessment and could even provide them better pitches to hit. Seems a waste to have Escobar hitting number one or number two. It's been more number two. We learn nothing there and he is not the future. You can argue it makes sense to keep Robles at leadoff in the remaining weeks to see if he is a leadoff hitter, but then at least one of Keyboom and Garcia should hit number two, shoot, have them hit number two and number three, and let Soto hit number four. Why not? Nothing to lose, question mark. Curious of your thoughts. I think that's a really interesting question. I would not be against doing those things. I want Robles to stay in the number one spot, but I do think we're going to get to a point where batting the Alcides Escobars and the Lane Thomases in the two spot kind of be like, especially with Escobar, what are we doing here anymore? Okay. Like it's one thing if Escobar's getting a bunch of hits like he has been, you say, all right. But as that starts to dissipate, I think they do need to entertain, okay, Keyboom or Garcia in that number two spot. I think Chris is onto something with that. I get the thought there from him, but here's what I would say. You ultimately want to put these guys in spots that you think they project to in their careers. And I'm not sure they view either of them as a top of the order hitter. I think Keeboom hitting fifth, which we saw here against the lefty, was a good spot for him because you know with Soto and Bell in front of him, he's going to get chances to hit with runners in scoring position. That's exactly what happened in Sunday's game. And I thought he responded well to it. In Garcia's case, he's such a free swinger and has shown some flashes of power. I don't necessarily get the sense. I know he hit lead off at AAA. But I don't know that they view him as a top-of-the-order hitter. And so are you benefiting him and the organization's development by putting him into a spot that, first of all, he may not be ready for, but even secondly, that may not be where he winds up, even if he is a a long-term big leaguer. So I don't necessarily know about that one. I think Soto should stay third. I have no problem with that. Bell should hit behind him as the best protection for him. I'm fine with that. You could argue Soto second and Bell third. That's fine. You want to do that and give them more bats and then bump everybody else up from there. But given what the options are, I can't fault Davey for doing what he's doing. And I don't know that just because somebody is young and you want to look at him doesn't necessarily mean that you bump him up to the top of the lineup. Because if that's not ultimately where you think they're going to hit, then they're not going to benefit from hitting in that spot. Yeah, I guess I would just say this. It's really kind of pointless to keep going down the Alcides Escobar path. Like it is fun that he does what he does. But at some point we have to say, all right, if you don't plan to have him back next year, and maybe they do, maybe they're like, hey, he's going to be back with us next year. But if they don't, then you are kind of wasting your time having him bat second. Because if he's gone a year from now, we'll, we'll look back on some of this and be like, what was the point of that? Like, you know, it, it's like the stuff we talked about with, you know, like Gerardo Parra, right? Like, well, okay, like it's fun and nice, the baby shark stuff, but like get other people at bats in left field. Like, especially now that Lane Thomas is up, to me, left field should be Lane Thomas, maybe a little bit of Yadiel Hernandez, and I guess occasionally Parra. But otherwise, you know, even Andrew Stevenson, like let some of the younger guys go out there and see what they can do. And I know it goes against the way Davey Martinez likes to manage, but uh, I think that's something to be considering as uh, the season goes on. Well, you tell us what you think. Keep the feedback coming. You can email us, like I said, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. You can send us a voice memo as well. We are continuing to solicit uh, your memories of the 2019 Nationals postseason run. A, because you, the Nats fan, were never given a proper victory lap last season. And B, we know all the good vibes we can get here as uh, this national season continues to go as it is going. You can tweet us as well at Nats underscore chat. 
Please, if you don't already subscribe to the podcast, consider subscribing to the pod. Uh, doing so costs you nothing and helps us out a lot. Also, uh, if you haven't already, please give the podcast a five-star rating and just write like uh, one or two-sentence review. Doing those things helps out the podcast a lot. You can get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt as well by going to natschatpodcast.square.site. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan, and we will leave you with another very good voice memo from a Nats Chat Pod listener, Chip Lazenby, with his memories of the Nationals' 2019 postseason run. Hi, guys. This is Chip from Kaneohe, Hawaii. Uh, My wife and I are former Nats season ticket holders and still follow the Nats really closely all the way out here. Love the podcast, by the way. So my 2019 World Series story, we had a long planned trip back to the East Coast in D.C. to visit family and friends in October 2019. And as that started tearing through the playoffs, I looked at the World Series calendar and I looked at my wife and said, this is unbelievable. We're going to be in town right around the time of games three, four, and five. So we got tickets to game five. We're super bummed when Max got scratched, but still get goosebumps thinking of going and chanting, let's go, Joe, to to cheer Joe Ross on as he stepped up to the mound and did his best. After the game, we went back to the house we were renting, literally had to stay up all night packing up all our kids' stuff, all our stuff, didn't get a minute of sleep, (laughs) went to the airport with our two young children, ages two and three months, I think, at the time, flew back to Hawaii, recovered, next day watched game six, day game seven, I have to go to work because of the time difference, I don't get off work until about the fourth or fifth inning get home in time to to watch the exciting end and then walk down to our our local beach park about three minutes down the road from our house pop some champagne and and celebrated so just want to share that memory with you guys and and thanks so much for the podcast i like one other caller said it's i almost like it better than the games (laughs) so thanks so much bye